right. Hi, this is Dr. Drew Rubin, and I have a very special edition of the ChiroCast podcast today, because with me, I have probably one of my favorite authors and mentors um, in the last 15 or so years. Um, I first listened, uh, I heard about Dr. Stephen Porsches um, in 2010, when I was at International Chiropractic Pediatric Association conference and someone mentioned the polyvagal theory for the first time. And I'd never heard of it before. And uh, I was so enthralled with what I thought the implications were for autism and for children um, that I immediately went out on Amazon, of course, got the book. By the time I came back from the seminar, there it was. Um, and ever since then, I have been devouring uh, everything about the polyvagal theory, uh, including uh, his latest book, uh, Polyvagal Safety, which I really, really like. Uh, the implications of that, especially in pediatrics. Um, so <clears throat> I have this beautiful, unique opportunity to talk with Dr. Porges today. So I want to bring him to our listeners on ChiroCast. And I thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Drew. And thank you for the kind words. Uh, let's have a good time. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So I have some interesting questions for you. And hopefully they're a little different than some of the typical questions you've gotten uh, over the years. Um, my first question is, uh, what are you reading right now that is motivating you? Uh, like in terms of in two different terms, in terms of science and health, that kind of stuff, but also just in terms of pure motivation and inspiration. What, what are the things that you're... Okay. It's an interesting question because on the science side, I'm, I'm diving into inflammation, which should be very relevant to your world and yeah. the linkage between that and functionally the autonomic nervous system in the vagus. And I'm actually uh, thinking and developing what I hope will be a non-invasive marker of inflammatory action off of the heart rate pattern itself. So I have the ideas, I have the data sets, and now I have to work with them to pull out that algorithm. Uh, on the uh, less than academic side, I mean, we're all in kind of turmoil with what's going on in the world. So uh, the humanistic aspect of what am I reading? I'm reading the news. I'm also doing podcasts with therapists who are in Eastern Europe. I actually uh, did a podcast in Ukraine last week, and uh, wow. I've been engaging with uh, many of the therapists in East, Eastern Europe to try to talk to them about many of the features that polyvagal theory teaches us, That meaning that if we're frightened or tense, we're not going to be good therapists and we're not going to be good uh, parents or spouses. We're going to be uh, conveying our defenses to those that we wish and hope to calm down. Yeah. So I really was focusing on all these talks on self-awareness, self-care, self-compassion. Wow. So, so you've actually made some contacts with mm -hmm. people in the Ukraine, in the war zone. Yeah, and, yeah. To, and they're actually, isn't that amazing that they're still doing podcasts in Ukraine? Wow. Yeah, well, in areas of, the, of Ukraine, yes. I mean, this is uh, for all, For first of all, I would say for most people or many people in the world, we're all transgenerationally traumatized. And what's going on now, I mean, we may feel kind of uncertain about the future of the world, but it's hitting all the buttons that we grew up with. And this goes back to, Old, really old people, older than I am, old than you are, and also young people. So uh, the actual cues are profound. 
especially for people. And again, this may even be your family heritage. It may have come over from Eastern Europe. And so you start getting these types of feelings of what your grandparents went through and why they emigrated to the United States. And I mean, it's a moment really for us to reflect about our, the journey of our parents, our grandparents and and great grandparents. Yes. It's interesting. You said that because I have an, Atlanta seems to be a hotbed for people from Russia to emigrate here. And a a lot of them are under a lot of intense stress because either they have family in Russia or Ukraine Mm. that are being affected, or there is actually, just like at the beginning of the pandemic, there was all this negative uh, racist, you know, kind Mm. of things going on with people from China. There's some racist stuff happening now with people from Russia or you, you know, Mm. the stress that they're under it's it's really the fact that you know my view used to be people are nice governments are a real problem you know it's the politics of life but humanity is really it's a you know it's a beautiful form of of life you know we have to realize that so uh, such a vast percentage of humanity is a loving humanity and we have to kind of respect it basically it's it's in us in our DNA, to be helpful, to be compassionate, to be supportive of others. And we're only not that way when we are in such defense states that we don't have the resources to feel safe in ourselves and we pull back and we become defensive. Right, right. And how does this, how do you think this relates? I guess being more of a pediatric, you know, focused Mm -hmm. kind of person, how do you think this is the pandemic uh, and this war is affecting our kids today? What do you well, you, you know the answer. I mean, in the way you phrase the question, you know the answer. Uh, the pandemic by itself retuned us to be fearful of people. Yes. Okay. And why? And here's the paradox: because in the history of humanity, or the history of social mammals, forget humanity, go back to mammals. Right. Uh, under threat, where would the uh, threatened mammal go? It would go to a safe, trusted other. Now we talk about a child going to a mother but really everyone goes to someone or needs someone who's there not evaluating them whose presence is important and we we kind of make we get too objective about life and too pragmatic and we forget that bodily feelings enable us to be resilient or us to be really extraordinarily defensive and lose our resources. So when we feel safe, we can solve complex problems. We can really save the world, literally. If we feel threatened, we become myopic. Its focus is really on self-survival. And that's how we're wired. If you scare people enough, they will not be, most won't be helpful for to others when i have to be very careful in making those statements because i'm reminded of victor frankel who was a survivor from the holocaust and when i read his his book like every graduate student does you really you really come to a conclusion that when it gets really tough you the angels come out there's some of these people who have so much internal resource that when things become difficult, then they glow, they become supportive, helpful, they're there, and they're not frightened by what's going on around them. Now, we end up by trying to evaluate people, like, you should do this, you should do that. That's an intentional behavior. And that rides on top of our physiology. If our body determines that we are under great threat, doesn't matter what our intentional mind says. 
So we have to, this says, listen to what the body's telling us and kind of navigate with that and literally convince the body that it's safe enough to function, which may mean reducing uh, stimulation. So we asked the question like in pediatrics and in autism, one of the important things to think about is the fact that they're overstimulated. Yes. And, and so the issue, what does that mean from a neurophysiological level? It means that their autonomic nervous system is in a state of defense. Mm-hmm. So they don't have the resources to use social interaction to be calming because when you're in a state of defense, social cues are intrusive. Right. They're threatening. The pandemic has changed many of us. And I even put myself into that category. It's retuned my autonomic nervous system. So now walking down the street and seeing people first, I look to see if they have a mask on. And I, you know, I, I kind of, it doesn't have the, in a sense, the cues of safety that you're walking in a town where other people are walking, they're smiling, they're happy, you're feeling good. No, you know, the pandemic has made us feel different. Mm-hmm. And just before we started this podcast today, I was on with a travel agent. And this is the first time I am traveling, planning on traveling in May and June okay. to give talks. And I am extraordinarily uncomfortable yes. with the thought of it. And so rather than flying coach, I'm trying to figure out how to fly business class. Sure, sure. I, 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 so it says it's kind of like, I want my wife to go with me. So I'm not sitting next to someone I don't know. I'm trying to create the environment that will enable me. It's kind of like I'm trying to rehabilitate myself. So the, the extra funds to fly business become irrelevant because I know I have to do these things to come back out into the world because that's what, that's why we're here. We're here to engage others. Right. Right. And what do you, what do you think about the long-term ramifications that, uh, cause I'm already seeing changes in kids, even little babies uh, yeah. now, what do you think about the long-term ramifications? Well, this becomes, you know, when you're in me- medical care or healthcare professions, you start getting into this conundrum of, destiny or locked in that I, I move in the world with this optimistic view. It may be a little bit on the naive side. So I see many of the difficulties that you study as being locked into a physiological state that is flexible, but in that state, those behaviors come out. And so the real issue is, can we get people into other states? Can we give them cues, sufficient cues of safety that their bodies can process that and change state? It's it's an optimistic view. I think we use terms like neuroplasticity. We go to the most complicated level when we're really talking about very lower brainstem structures. Can we turn off our threat reactions? Mm -hmm. What happens when we do that? What happens to the higher brain structures when we turn off very foundational threat reactions? Well, what happens? Basically, they become what they should be. They are able to optimize their function. Right, right. And, and that's that's what I've been seeing so much in my practice with the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, the spectrum, like we've talked about, yeah. is, is by creating this, this like oasis of safety in my office, and having them come repeatedly and then doing exercise at home. I see them calming down and becoming more socially engaged and more. Yeah, but let me give you another bit, which, you know, how do you feel when that happens? Well, I feel really good knowing yeah. I'll see their eye contact improving, yeah. less tantrums and that kind of stuff. And what are you now projecting to them? 
Well, I'm projecting a, re a reciprocal state. You are projecting kindness, openness, right? accessibility, not evaluation, not threat. So you're a partner in a neural exercise, but that neural exercise is not only beneficial to your clients, it's beneficial to you. Yes, yes. Well, well just like the whole idea of like, you can light one candle, but that candle is now creating more light, right? So mm -hmm. you keep on spreading the light, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I love that. So, um, so going uh, to a different topic now, but that was fabulous. I, I'm taking notes. You know, <laughs> I always take your recording. You don't need to take notes. <laughs> True. But I, I take notes because it makes me think better. Um, what, what's the next evolution of the polyvagal theory? Where do you see it going from here? Well, it, I, I know where it's going. I see where it's going. It's in a sense to, uh, it's functionally inviting other uh, silos or subdisciplines like inflammatory systems, endocrine systems, mitochondrial systems, you know, basic energy systems in the body, huh. because they all follow the basic rules that one could see in polyvagal theory. And that was under challenge, they go through de-evolution, dissolution, they go back to more primitive states, and they go from even on a uh, mitochondria or a bacterial level, when things are going well at that level of life form, they socialize, they reproduce. When things get bad, they kind of hunker down and try to survive. When they get really bad, they implode, they die off. Right. And this is basically the three stages of the polyvagal theory, which we see in the autonomics. But um, really what I'm learning is that we see it throughout all living systems. And so if you ask me, where's the polyvagal theory going? It's going into showing this integration of living systems following common rules. But it also gives you the building blocks of social systems, that the real issue of creating a social system starts with a dyad, the ability of an individual to downregulate threat or another individual to help one downregulate threat. So you have this dyadic reciprocal co-regulation and that becomes the basis of society. It becomes the basis of business transactions and politics. So I see the theory moving in one direction into those types of philosophical understandings of what it is to be a human. So now we have a biology of being a human uh, in, in, invested or intertwined with our teachings and understanding of, of the social sciences. So the social sciences are merely manifestations of these very, uh, I would say, uh, program archetypical structured neurobiological uh, programs. So what you're doing is you are going, using the polyvagal theory, but going deeper into more cellular levels. Both directions, both directions, yeah, into wow. the general generalizability to smaller bits. So, you know, those of us who have been, in a sense, gone to school and learned about all these systems, they've always been partitioned and they get real low. And then you say, in, in your world, or not my world, because I was never a clinician, people say, well, what's all this knowledge useful for? You know, it's like, it doesn't relate to how I relate to my patients. And my patients want my love, my concern, and my support. And then we start getting into this bit, is this a real support or is this placebo? And the point is, let's change the word placebo and let's say, let's call it, how do we recruit our body's own healing potential? 